Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Game World Cup podcast from The Times, and today we are reacting to a stunning start to the tournament for England. Goals for Drew Bellingham, Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford, Jack Grealish, and two for Bakaya Saka gave Gareth Southgate's side a commanding 6-2 victory over Iran that helped them put their poor pre-tournament form behind them. We'll also be talking about Wales, who pulled off a comeback draw against the USA, the controversy surrounding the One Love armband, and Holland's 2-0 win against Senegal. This is the game. Hello and welcome to the Game World Cup podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark, standing in for Hugh Woodencroft, who is working hard covering that magnificent Wales comeback. But before we discuss that draw for Rob Page's side, we have to talk England. It's only day two, guys, but Super Gareth Southgate has already silenced all of his doubters. Can you believe it? <laughs> Guiding England to a magnificent attacking, dominant win against Iran. Now, I'm joined today by a team of those Southgate doubters. I've got Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson in the UK and Johnny Northcroft and Tom Roddy out in Qatar. Now, Johnny, you've seen many of England's notoriously slow starts in major tournaments. And your piece today on the Times app is appraising an England side dominant in possession, blessed with creative intent. So I can only assume that you think we're going to win it now, right? Foregone, isn't it, Tom? Absolutely. Now, I've never been a Southgate doubter um over the last year though i think there's been plenty of questions to ask and i didn't see this performance quite such a good performance coming after the year that england have had it's hard to find fault in it you know they're playing one of the most nuggety deep block um well set up teams usually iran under carlos quiroz and the way they went about it just had everything patience a lot of class in the movement um i wrote about this but what really impressed me was the the rotations England had, you know, one of the charges laid against Gareth Southgate is nice bloke, can't coach. They look like a brilliantly coached team tonight, England, some of the stuff that was going on. And then the possession, nearly 800 passes. I mean, that's kind of Barcelona-esque. And there's just a control to the game. There was a purpose to everything they did. Um, and there was, a, you know, a palpable togetherness and energy about England that, that when Gareth spoke afterwards, he was almost sort of, I think moved a little bit by how good the performances had been and what the players gave him. And it just made, all of it made you think, wow, this team's in a really, really, they've, they've turned up at this World Cup in a really good state. Alison, there you go. Barcelona-esque. We're going to win it, aren't we? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. I was hoping to get a full no, okay. house of enthusiasm. Come on. No, I don't. 
ever want to argue with Johnny Northcroft, but I I wouldn't say I saw a sign of an excellently coached team for a start. How's that happened then? Because they've only just got together, having had a poor build-up. I thought the opposite happened. I thought because they'd had so little prep time, they were playing with um, the sort of freedom you get when the boss doesn't have time to interfere, can't overcoach you, can't instill a sense of conservatism. So instead, probably said, look, it's Iran. The, the fact he went with four at the back, I think, told the team we can be more attacking. That's what the boss wants. And I thought they played with the sort of freedom you get when there's a lot of younger people who are together of a similar mindset and a similar stage in their careers and development. What they gave you was enjoyable football. I agree with Johnny about the energy and the attitude. But I would would say they were undercoached. They were told they are by far and away the superior players by quite some distance. And that's what we saw. We saw what we rarely see from England. We saw a team that actually plays at a level that you would expect from what you see week in, week out from them when they're playing for their clubs. Just a fluke then, apparently. I can't believe it. No, no, no. I'm not saying it was a fluke, but I don't think it was brilliant coaching. I think it was... I think it was necessity. The things that we saw England do, you know, Raheem Sterling coming inside so many difficult positions with Luke Shaw going on the outside or, or the way that Saka changed positions with Trippier, some of Bellingham's runs. I mean, that didn't look accidental. That looked like coaching. These looked like routines. I find it hard to say that they did that just because they were happy and Southgate's dead hand hadn't been upon them. I think you need to give them... Southgate's dead hand. It sounds like, sounds like a Waro title. <laughs> <laughs> they were doing things that if you saw Manchester City work these routines, you go, yeah, this is this is good coaching. So give Gareth his moment. This was this was this was Gareth's Manchester City night. Yeah, but seriously, <laughs> seriously, no, I mean I'm 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 slightly playing devil's advocate, as you can probably tell, but I do want to know how I mean how much coaching do you think they've had? I mean how, well, how, how, I mean they haven't been together long enough for this to be a long laid plan. No, I think you make a fair point there, Alison, but this is a team that we actually get exasperated that Gareth doesn't change enough. So you're looking at Kane and Sterling, they've played together 50 times or something. It was more or less the same team that he put out in the Euros. So I think the coaching's been done over a period of time. Bellingham's a new element in it. And maybe Bellingham could play for any manager in any system. He looks like that kind of player. But I think some of the other stuff was, especially the Sterling and Kane movement off each other, that's been built up over years. Right, come on, Gregor, you can settle the debate. You've often uh, mocked us England fans for our over-dramatised uh, woes. Yeah, saying we are sitting moaning all the time. Well, so in that, that respect, you must be delighted to see us start well, right? Absolutely. I'm not quite as effusive in my praise as, as Johnny. I thought, I sat there thinking two things. England looked brilliant. It was, it was a fantastic display. But I also have this nagging feeling already on day two that, the gulf between the best nations and the rest is going to be wider than ever. We're looking at the team ranked highest in Asia and Qatar won the Asian Cup recently. They, both, they were both shocking. Like, I, I know that we can say that this is possibly, um, you know, Nair's getting the, the better of Qatar and, and Iran having an off day and England still had to do something about it. They haven't done in the past so many times. So I'm not taking away anything from England's display. 
But I'm just saying those are the two things that were in my mind. I, I saw a lot of positive things for England and a lot of evidence already that I think there's a there's going to be a group of nations, largely European nations and, and the South Americans, that are just going to be miles ahead of anyone else. But we're talking about kind of specific specifics from the game. I thought there were some was some great interplay, and particularly I thought Mason Mount actually as well, the way that he he would have to do he would kind of link up with Harry Kane really well. And sometimes Harry Kane in the first half made a made a kind of uncharacteristic error afterwards. He did a little, little, little link up plays, and then Harry Kane one one time kind of knocked the ball straight out of play, and you're thinking, oh, this is you know that was almost something really good. But the way that the way that the front four interacted in particular was really really impressive. And then the other thing is that just kind of you should be really, really excited by is that he changed the three behind Harry Kane. Yes, you, you added Callum Wilson as well, but you, you, you're not looking at that thinking that there's any sort of step up, you know, step down in quality. All you're looking at is different characteristics, different traits. Players who are equally as good, but have different qualities. And you have that weapon that's kind of ready to be used in the second half. So attacking wise, you're in, you're in great shape. It was good to, good to get Harry Maguire back in. And although it wouldn't have ended the way you wanted, <laughs> it was a positive 70 minutes for him. And, you know, I think Gary Southgate said afterwards that he sort of said he was feeling ill just before the, the, the Iran goal, the first Iran first goal. So, you know, we can give him the benefit of doubt there, but it was good to have him back in the team. And although Gary Southgate was slightly disappointed, the fact he conceded two goals, I'm not sure you can be too disappointed after uh, an opening, opening day like that. I think he's, he did that. He said after the game that he was... He was disappointed and worried and didn't like the way that the game drifted. I don't think it would be a huge concern to him. I think he's just trying to bring the level of excitement that is that is inevitably going to happen when you've got a first, an opening game like that, that comes off the back of six winless streak and all the negativity around the team. Uh, and yet last year getting to the final, the, the, he, I think he knows it's a statement, but also what's, what was really quite interesting, I think it was also a big message to, the, to his players because what they've done now at this tournament, um, FIFA, is arranged so that the players come immediately off the pitch and into the mix zone area. So we got to see them as they came off uh, in those, you know, when they were still catching their breath to an extent. And... I mean, the, the word buzzing was used a lot and they really were. And I just thought there was that he was possibly trying to calm down a little bit, take take a little bit of a slice of the of the high away just to, to um, mellow them slightly because if you get carried away, then they could end up being punished when you come up against a team like the USA on Friday and then... If they come unstuck there, then the Wales game, seeing what we saw tonight and the passionate support that they've got and the and the, the, the quality that they have and the, all the, the dangerous part of the teams that they have, it might be a little bit of a problem for them. But um, I, I also thought as well, just to point out on the um, tactics side of the game, I, I, there were so many really good performances from different players. But I actually, I thought Bellingham was the, biggest improvement or evolution of the team because and impacting all areas because of course you had Phillips and Rice as the as double in midfield during the Euros but Bellingham actually became almost a, a fifth attacker at times 
Mount would, as soon as they were in possession, Mount would almost drift out to the left a little bit and Bellingham would join the attack. And it happened quite often. That was definitely planned over the last few days. It just, I think the, the concern is what will happen when they actually face a team who are a bit more elegant at attacking. Oh, this is, I, I can't, I can't believe this. Honestly, we've got the opposition was rubbish. <laughs> Let, Gareth wants us to calm down. Yeah. Alison doesn't believe there's any tactics. Johnny, it's just me and you for the rest of the podcast. Sod the other three. I can't believe it. 6 no, no, no. 2. Honestly, team Gareth all the way. But we should, I would just like to come back to something that, you know, we talked about so extensively in the lead up all season and we talked about it at previous tournaments formation and Tom alluded to it there you know I know it I know it's Iran it's only Iran lads but he still went four at the back even with you know Gregor you alluded to it there Harry Maguire's form he still played four at the back with Harry Maguire in defense you know had that Bellingham effect in midfield Johnny how significant do you think that is going forward Tom alluded to it there will he you know will he bottle it so to speak against the bigger and better teams and revert to a back five, or do you think that this performance and the confidence it brings means that he, you know, you kind of have to stick with it now? Look, I, I think he has to stick with it. I've been writing for years that that four three three is the way forward for England. The biggest, it's, it's a numbers game in midfield, and and I I can't imagine how many remember how many England games at big tournaments I've seen where they've just been outnumbered. They've gone with two in the middle, and better midfields have passed their way around them. And you just think, why why not just put an extra man in there? And it's this cultural adherence to 4-4-2 that, that seems to run through the generations. Today, we had three really good footballer mid- midfielders, but who could also do defensive jobs. Mason Mount's pressing is fantastic. Bellingham could do everything. Rice is primarily defensive, but he can pass the ball. So you, could have a, you had, you had a, a unit that had loads and loads of balance. They could keep the ball. They made great angles. And they gave England control in that area. But what happens against France in the quarterfinal? That's that's going to be the test for Gareth. And that's going to be the the, the dilemma where he has to decide, are his two centre-backs with Luke Shaw outside them, are they good enough to defend a really good team? I would argue that putting a third centre-back is just going to add another slightly mediocre player into the mix. So go with your strengths, go with your midfield. But to pick up on Tom's point, Bellingham's emergence makes this possible. And Gareth has, has been saying since the Euro final that it's all very well you lecturing me about not having Jorginho and not having Verratti, but I can't create these players for nothing. You know, we don't have that ability of player in midfield. But now with Bellingham, England do. And when you think that Calvin Phillips didn't even get on the pitch, but it could be another person to throw in the mix, I don't think there's any reason to go back to, to two in the middle. And, and and three four three or you know even three five two gives you three in the middle, but it's a very flat system and quite defensive. So I'd love to see him stick with this. The two things for me that are kind of improved by having an extra attacker on the pitch. It's not it's, the first is that Harry Kane was able to play a little bit more like he plays for Spurs. He dropped in and player can run behind them. Whereas if you've got a body less up front, that's a little bit more difficult to do that and for players to get close to him. That's the first thing. And as Johnny alluded to there, the second thing is. How quickly you won the ball back after losing it so often was really, really impressive. You know, some, someone like Bellingham, his physicality as well, it actually doesn't matter who you're playing against. You know, we, we could talk about how good the opposition are or not. When you're that powerful and aggressive and on the front foot, it doesn't matter who your opponent is. He's going to have to be someone, you know, some machine to kind of to stop him. He is a, an absolute, I don't know what the word is, he's, he's incredible. My mind was going back to watching him play for Birmingham when he was like just turned 16. He wasn't that 
physical specimen, but you still saw the heart. And now you're seeing him develop as a kind of man. I remember Pep Glottet, the Birmingham manager afterwards, it was January 2020. He said, he said that he'd he kind of, we spoke to him about Bellingham. I think he was getting a bit sick of actually talking about Bellingham. And he just threw in one wee nugget at the end. He went, he's grown two and a half centimetres since the start of the season. And we were like, I just sort of remembered, hang on. <laughs> he's like, this this is still a boy, but yeah. now he's a man. And they're like, you can see you can see that on the pitch and he can just absolutely stamp his authority all over the game. Absolutely. I mean, lots of understandable praise for Jude Bellingham and a few shouts out for Mason Mount as well. Alison, who impressed you after your withering uh, assessment of England's performance. It must be someone who stood out for you, surely. Come on. You can't be the grumpy one. I'm hosting. You can't take do the role not, of the grumpy one. Do not repackage me as grumpy. I'm not grumpy <laughs> at all. Uh, I, no, but what I mean, what I felt was that the, the team, it was as if Southgate had teased them with the five at the back formation or playing three centre-backs and that had inhibited them and just by just by shifting to, to 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 the new formation that liberated them that's what i felt was the key tactical change individually i was i was impressed most with harry kane because i'd become to worry that the the things he does for spurs he wasn't doing for england that unselfish ability to be all things to all men and when he's interviewed, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, he's like a, he's somebody who wants to break records and stay on the pitch all the time, and he wants to be the leading goal scorer, but he doesn't play that way. He's so unselfish, and he reads the movement of his teammates so very well. I just, I just think he went, actually, if it was possible, in my eyes, he went up a notch because, you know, he hasn't grabbed any of the headlines, but he was integral to that sense of it being a, Proper, properly crocheted move in attack. Everything felt grown up because of him. Perfect. That's more like it. That's what we want to hear. Absolutely spot on. And I mean, also a deserved mention, surely, for Bukayo Saka. I think one of the uh, few reasons why I was like, oh, this is why a tournament mid-season works because Arsenal haven't completely cocked up in the league and you get players from their team coming straight into this tournament bang in form, in the form of Bukayo Saka. I thought he was superb. Tom, I wanted to ask about the substitutes. I think we touched on it earlier in terms of those players coming on and Gregor mentioning the threat that we have off the bench. That's something that, again, England under Southgate have maybe lacked. I'm not suggesting that this was a plan B necessarily, but you did have players like Marcus Rashford who comes on and takes a goal with great composure, which is something that, again, has been levelled at Rashford before, doesn't doesn't keep his head when in on goal. How did you see it in the stadium, You know, in terms of those changes that were made, Grealish, Rashford coming off the bench, players that perhaps before would have been starting. Um, how did you see it in terms of those substitutions and the changes? There's probably two parts to it. And one is that, and, and possibly the main thing, is that the game felt won when those changes were made. But also, we're still at a stage where the, the Premier League season finished a week ago, or, or, or the domestic league season's only finished a week ago. And the thing that... Southgate has had to do over the past week is really carefully manage the way in which his players, as all managers are having to do here and coaches, the way in which they're training, acclimatising to the temperatures and the surroundings uh, here and, and not overdoing it because 
we've seen the injuries leading into this tournament and there was a big danger of that happening. And, uh, and there were concern, concerning moments tonight with Harry Kane's uh, ankle, which he ended up, the ankle ended up under a quite heavy challenge. So I think that is part of it. And the other part is, and it maybe it's, I don't know if it's doing a disservice, but I think it's just Southgate's good side in thinking that this is an opportunity to get these guys on who who, who also deserve to be on. I think he realizes that you, you could have, you could have easily started Phil Foden in that game tonight and it wouldn't have been controversial in any way. Maybe not Jack Grealish uh, at the moment with his form for City, but it, the interesting thing is the way in which, uh, and it made me think of it from what Alison just said about Harry Kane, but there's an element of some of these players almost being liberated by playing for England. Saw it with Raheem Sterling, saw it with Harry Maguire, who had a good game tonight, seen it with Kane and a, and a few of these players who are almost forgetting the form and the troubles that they've had for their clubs and come here. It's almost major tournament mentality, which England for so many years didn't have. And now they go from struggling in Nations League games and uh, friendly field matches to having a major tournament mentality. You mentioned some players being in form there, but you also mentioned injuries. One thing I was thinking about in my kind of editing head about what could the issues be going forward was at right back. Kieran Trippier's performance I thought was pretty good, taking that form that he's had for Newcastle. But obviously one of the players who's been pretty symbolic, I think, of the pragmatic Gareth Southgate era is Kyle Walker, one of my favourite players for England in terms of his importance in that defence. I want to know from all of you, it's only one game in, but I'm going to ask you a big question anyway. If Walker's fit, does he come straight back in or does Trippier keep his place after that performance? Johnny, I'll start with you. No, Trippier's are out. I mean, I'm fully paid what member of the Trent fan club, but I wouldn't put Trent in ahead of Kevin Trippier at the moment. And I think the Kyle Walker as the attacking fullback was probably the Kyle Walker of three or four years ago. Trippier defends brilliantly, but also such an intelligent player. So many small good decisions. Mm. And the crossing was excellent tonight, so no reason to drop it. Alison, can't even with your Liverpool hat persuade you to put Trent in ahead of Trippier? Of course you will. <laughs> <laughs> then, I don't prove... need to, then I don't need to say anything, do I? Oh, come on. I thought you were going to prove him wrong then, Alison. Gregor, what do you no. reckon? I think it would depend on the shape again. If he goes to back three, Kyle Walker's the natural fit on the right, probably. Uh, and Trippier will probably play at wing back. He's just a kind of pillar of consistency. And again, you know, a couple of things that you forget really is the set pieces are ridiculous. They're they're brilliant, and actually, you forgot about that that threat about Maguire too. You know, he hmm. maybe he might have a little rick at the back, but he might score a goal at the other end because he's a massive threat. So, no, absolutely, Trippy. I think he's one of the first names on the team sheet for Gareth Southgate just these days. Tom, you in agreement? Yeah, I am. Um, I, I was going to make exactly the same point as Gregor in that the only. The only thing with Walker being back and available is that it would open up a temptation for uh, Southgate to be able to go back to that back three because then he can be the right side of the three. But one, you know, we, we know Trippier's importance to him and to England, but one uh, moment tonight really outlined it. It wasn't even like the set, set pieces, which were excellent and passes he was playing it was when Harry Kane came off the pitch because he handed the 
armband, the FIFA armband, to to Trippier. And I thought that was a really significant moment in showing just how highly Gareth Southgate not only rates him, but how how clearly he sees him as a leader in this group of players. Well, you mentioned it there, Tom, about the captain's armband. And as is becoming a theme during this World Cup already, the football was not the only talking point despite a 6-2 win. Before kickoff, it was confirmed that England captain Harry Kane would not be wearing the One Love armband due to FIFA's threat to show Kane a yellow card. The FA was one of seven World Cup associations that planned to use the rainbow-coloured armband as a message against discrimination in Qatar, where, of course, homosexuality is illegal. But England were forced to back down before kickoff, meaning that the only person wearing the one love armband was BBC pundit Alex Scott during her pitch side analysis before kickoff. So caused a lot of conversation before the match started, and you know it deserves some discussion now. Johnny, what do you make of the FA's handling of this situation? Do, do you feel it was a bit naive to offer the armband as a statement in the first place? If you're not going to kind of stand by it all the way through, how do you how do you see it? Yeah, I think week week from start to finish. To be honest, it felt like a weak gesture at the beginning, uh, and sort of nebulous armband that isn't really even accepted by all people in the LGBT community as being representative of um, of them. Um, and then to to sort of make a big play about how brave they were going to be and do it, even right the way up until today, and then to back down, it just feels like the worst of all outcomes, actually. And you have to say, if you were in the LGBT community, you might just feel a bit patronised and used by it all. And, and that, you know, it wasn't... At the end of the day, it didn't mean enough for England to, to actually follow through with it. Just imagine if... I think you'll agree with me, Johnny, on this one. Just imagine if the seven countries who'd agree to wear the armband because what's happened is by FIFA saying they don't want it it's made the armband more significant than it was at the beginning you're quite right at the beginning it was a very weak gesture suddenly it becomes quite a big gesture if those seven nations had agreed between themselves to test what exactly would happen almost like a shop steward sort of approach let's see if the referees do actually book the captains for doing this I mean, worst case scenario would be you'd have seven players on a yellow card that shouldn't be, but the yeah. the enormity of that, whether it happened or not, would be amazing. And all that sense of being patronised, as you talk about, would dissipate immediately because it would feel like what was initially quite a pathetic gesture has suddenly had a bit of bite to it. Do we feel there's any sense that there will be further gestures that actually, you know, are stood by and that actually land in this tournament because it you know we're only in day two and we've already had so many off-pitch discussions and controversies around so many different issues it feels to me and maybe i'm wrong you know tom johnny you're out there Alison, you've been keeping a track of these things do we feel like someone is actually going to make a stand at some point or is it just going to be these half promises that then get quashed and then we discuss the facts that fifa have quashed them rather than anyone actually making the stand as Alison points out i think our eyes will now turn to the countries that have been more grown up in their response. So Australia and Denmark and so on, who, who might do something uh, as a group. I, I don't want to predict what it will be, but they've certainly shown that they feel quite strongly about it. What I found most distressing, if you like, was you had a team, England, who were unable to find a way to wear one armband standing next to a team of players who refuse to sing their national anthem and the sanctions against them, we can only guess what they will be. They Mm. were actually being incredibly brave because 
the situation they're involved in is is so serious. I mean, people people are being killed on a daily basis, and the reason they got such great support in the stadium was because the fans recognised, oh, at last the players are playing for us and not them. That would have been an incredibly brave and difficult decision for them to do, but they did it whilst stood next to a group of players who the worst that was going to happen was one yellow card. That didn't sit comfortably with me, I have to say. Hmm. Do we think that, you know, Alison, you're talking about the England players there. Do we think that they've been slightly let down by the FA in terms of, you know, the players always end up as the face of this, don't they? Harry Kane, by being captain, ends up as the face of this. But it's not it's not Harry Kane's decision-making that's happened that has taken this yes, to the point no, where forget, we're at now. For- yeah, forgive me, Tom. Exactly. I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't saying the players as in individuals, but the, no, the, the, I, imi- I, the image. The image is of the players because yeah. they aren't getting the support from their various FAs. But in this particular case, Iran were playing England, and that's who the contrast was with. Yeah, we saw a lot of um, Iranian fans as well joining their team in that kind of show of solidarity for what's going on in their country. I'm interested in what it was like outside the ground and what it's been like beforehand. Tom, you wrote the first um, of our football newsletters that's going out daily during the week, during the tournament. You wrote the first one today, talked about what you'd seen. What's it been like generally in terms of what you've seen in Qatar so far while you've been out there? Well, I suppose the most strike, I got out here late on Tuesday night. So a while before the tournament was actually starting and probably the most striking thing was how small the the city is and how populated it was before anyone really started arriving. I mean, um, the central area, the souk in the central area, they're, they're relatively narrow uh, pathways and it already felt very busy. And it was interesting actually Today, watching, I watched the Wales game from a, a restaurant after coming back from the England match and seeing the amount of Wales fans, that beautiful red that we saw, a sea of shirts, I thought, where have they been? Because, mm. and, I, and it made me wonder whether they're, they're staying in Dubai or something like that. Maybe we'll be able to work at, get some more clarity on that. But we have heard the stories of people deciding to, to stay in Dubai and, and come in because otherwise it's it has been, even though it's very busy, it, it feels like it's busy because it's so small here. And I've, I've spent a lot of time going to Awakra, England's training base, where they're really sort of, and, and I'm wondering whether this is part of the, the thing they're benefiting from. Um, they, they're really quite isolated and, and I think they're quite isolated from all of this, um, all of the noise around them. You know, there, there's so mm. many distractions that they could have with the with um, the One Love armband, with the talk of whether they were going to take a knee, just the form in general. There was so much noise around them, but down there they've, they've created this bubble where it, it sounds like a really nice environment where they're, you know, watching Matt Hancock um, gobbling things on I'm a Celebrity each night or playing <laughs> basketball. And it wasn't a total surprise to see that performance come because because of how the environment has been down there. Johnny, how have you found it while you, since you got out there? A bit like Tom and yet sort of some of the opposite experiences as well. I mean, I, I have seen very busy areas. I haven't been in the suit yet, but I went to the Pearl one evening, which is absolutely rammed. Um, and it's this incredible sort of, I don't know, Las Vegas built on, a, on an island. 
of reclaimed land is floating off the bay. And that's incredibly busy. But there's other times you're in Qatar, you're in Doha, and it's just it's empty. You know, you see vast buildings, vast highways, vast sort of public concourses with just nobody there. I went out to La Salle, uh, which is where one of the stadiums is, and I took a bike ride. They've got an Olympic cycling track, and, and you cycle for 10 miles without meeting anyone mm. um, with empty highways. And Qatar University was there. I didn't see anybody around. And I was speaking to a Scott that um, works on TV over here. He's been out here for 10 years, and he, he said, this place is always deserted. Mm. So I think there's, I think it's a, it's a strange place that I think you could live here for years and not quite get your head around because so many people are are migrants, so many people are transient, and so much money has gone into building the, the, the infrastructure without before the, the, the sort of population or the economies there to, to sort of service it. So it's, a, it's an odd place, but there's some amazing sort of moments of cultural melting pot as well here because you do realise you're in the middle of the world geographically in many ways and that the Middle East isn't just you know, Qatar, Saudi, Abu Dhabi, whatever. There's, there's people here from Lebanon, Egypt, uh, Jordan, all over the Middle East. And that makes quite a sort of intoxicating mix at times. I've, I've actually been more and more fascinated with this place by the day, actually. And, and I'm not, I wouldn't, I'm not, don't think I'd live here, but I could certainly spend a bit of time trying to sort of discover what it's really about because I'm, I'm still slightly mystified. Well, that, that lends the, uh, idea that it surely can't be that hot then johnny if you're a scott who's willing to willing to move out there then it's got to be a myth isn't it it's not that hot or have you just been inside air-conditioned stadiums too much is what's going on come on not, not all of us are peely wally thomas <laughs> it's, it's um, got a collection of fair check hats as well <laughs> it's it, i don't think it, like it's not that hot until you realize it's the middle of winter and then it is that hot for right. the middle of winter but at the moment it's fine good well i'm sure we'll hear plenty more about fan experiences and the experiences of you guys as the tournament progresses up next we'll be discussing wales and that comeback draw against usa and holland's win against senegal it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Now, Wales have been waiting since 1958 for their return to the World Cup stage. And while they could only draw with USA, it was a result which was well worth the wait. Rob Page's side inspired by fantastic travelling support. I'm pretty sure we're all in agreement that was some of the best atmosphere we've seen at the tournament so far. I could even pick it up on the telly back home. And it had to be him, Gareth Bale from the penalty spot, cancelling out Timothy Weyer's opener. Now, Johnny, this was a... For me, the old cliche, a game of two halves, wasn't it? I thought USA looked pretty dominant in the first half and I was sat in the office with all the guys thinking, this is not going to go well. It's going to be two, maybe even three nil. I thought USA looked pretty dominant, both in defence, in terms of their pressing. And they looked quicker in attack. But they changed it at half-time, Wales, didn't they? Off on came Kiefer Moore and they looked more direct. They looked more up for it. I thought it was a real kind of rallying spirited classic Wales performance, wasn't it? It was. That second half was was what's got Wales here and reminds you that Rob Page is a really good coach because he, he he can spot things like that. But but the first half, as as you say, the USA looked great for a while. Mm. Really jetting, nice passing on the front foot all the time. You thought they were gonna score two or three, they scored a really, really good goal. I think if one player sums the USA up, it's Christian Pulisic. Mm. You know, flatters to deceive I have to say looks like they're going to be incredible looks like he's going to be incredible and by the end of the game he was just you know misplacing everything and going down for fouls having started the game looking every bit the the superstar that he was built up to be at one point of his career and they're a funny team I mean the, the penalty they gave away was just so crude and basic mm. I don't you know I wouldn't insult non-league players by saying it was a non-league challenge it was it was just Rubbish, ridiculous. Greg is winning. I think he's on board with that that idea of being at a lower league challenge. Don't worry about that. (laughs) No, I've done plenty of them, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with Johnny, yeah. That was was just a moment of madness. I think Wales deserved deserved to get a draw from from the second half performance. And as you say, Kiefer Moore changed the game. It's not just the fact that he's a target man. He uses his body so well. He He can kind of... Take a take a pass to feet, but like open up and switch play really, really well and quickly, and it just got Wales moving forward in the first half. It sounds like basic analysis, but there was there were just like big spaces between each player. They were really rigid. They were they weren't getting close to each other. And it, it, if they couldn't get for, get the ball forward and make it stick, and Kiefer Moore changed all of that. He let Wales have kind of time enough to get players more advanced up the pitch. And the second thing I actually think is a benefit of having Kiefer Moore in the team is they're more likely to bypass their own midfield. And I don't think Wales have, haven't watched this have a midfield. Hmm. I don't, that, that might sound harsh, but Aaron Ramsey and, and uh, Harry Wilson are better getting forward and supporting. And Ampadu, look, he had heart, but I'm not sure he's kind of someone that you're going to start building play through. So I, I think it's in Wales' interest to get the ball forward quickly and get their best players supporting uh, Kiefer Moore. So, you know, personally, I think we've seen a blueprint for them for the rest of the tournament in the second half. I just want to say, I think we've probably seen the biggest U-turn in World Cup. Well, I was going to say World Cup history, but I don't know the entire history of the World Cup. <laughs> but so I can't imagine there'll be a bigger U-turn this World Cup than we saw tonight with the USA team. Because Greg Berhalter, he didn't include um, Tim Ream in any of the build-up matches. Tim Ream was ready to to say goodbye to international football. He knew they wanted to build it on youth and pace, 
he, he did not expect to be called up. Okay, he gets called up and you think, oh, he's been called up for his experience and what he'll be like in the dressing room and his his common sense. And no, no, he starts him and he was at the heart of everything they did well in defensively. He, he played like he does for Fulham. He brought the ball out. He was the one who played the long, accurate passes and mopped up everything else. And he was not the one who gave away the penalty, even though that's what the commentary said. So it's, it's I just, I must say, can you, anyone think of someone, a manager who's made such a big U-turn at the start of a World Cup? No, I can't, you see, I can't it, think is, of it, it is it, it is it. Tom, what did you make of it? What did you make of these two sides' performances? And... You know, we have to think about it. Anything for England to be worried about from either of those sides going forward? I thought the most striking difference, obviously, it was t- totally different to uh, being in the being in the stadium to watching on television. But the most striking difference was the increase in intensity from that game compared to England's game. And and of course, it's always going to be different when you've got a team that's having so much possession and trying to break their their opposition and a and a and a very populated low block down but they both showed they both showed signs of their attacking quality and Gary Jacob who is um our colleague and for the next fortnight my neighbor here <laughs> um he, he did an interview with um Keeper Moore heading into this tournament and you just you could feel the it was palpable how confident he was coming here he's got that underdog against all odds mentality prove everyone wrong he's going to be a really dangerous tool that wales have against anyone let alone england but he's also a, a distraction to um gareth bale gareth bale doesn't have the, the powers that he did in years gone by, but it's still there and it's he's still playing for Wales. I agree with Johnny on Christian Pulisic, but again, there were moments there where I came into this tournament and thought, are we going to see the Christian Pulisic of Chelsea who sort of wilted a little bit and, and looks pretty miserable? Or is he going to emerge as Captain America again? Um... And and in a similar way to what I was talking about earlier, have that kind of liberation. We had both, <laughs> we had both a little bit in the end. But I think he does, he does feel like the protagonist when he puts on the Team US top. And I think he, he will, he will be the one to stop when England play him. It was quite a, a niggly game, wasn't it? And you know, there's quite a lot of yellow cards. Uh, the referee Abdul Rahman Al Jassim looked very busy, didn't he, throughout the game, getting involved, lots of chats with all the captains and things very happy all the time too yeah very happy to have a chat you know (laughs) loving being centre stage Um, I don't blame him I couldn't quite work out in the first half I thought that Wales were falling for a kind of trap that the USA had set in terms of like pressing dishing out a few fouls where they leave a bit on them and kind of thing and then in the second half it seemed to be the USA who got caught up in that you know overthinking Pulisic I thought as well Tom, you talked about it there, started moaning all the time rather than focusing on the fact that he's got loads of pace and if he runs at the Wales defence, he could maybe cause some problems. Gregor, how do you see it in terms of how Wales managed that? Do you think they actually managed it quite well and used it to their advantage? Was it more about Kiefer Moore coming on and giving them that presence of the kind of old school big team who, you know, um, be aggressive with the opposition? How did you see it? 
I think it was part of that and part of them, them kind of growing into the game and not realising that they were behind and they had to get something from this game and having a bit more confidence to try and, you know, Aaron Ramsey would collect the ball and on the half turn and play straight straight into Kiefer Moore's feet, whereas in the first half, he was bouncing off back to his centre-halves and they couldn't get out. They couldn't get through. You're right, US pressed really well. And any time they did try and play through midfield, the US had Adams, uh, Weston McCary and Musa. And as we you know, we've spoken about Bellingham, Bellingham and his physicality and energy. They they are not scared of a tackle. They will all put their foot in. So it won't be an easy game against them if England are trying to play through them. But that, that's that's I, th- I think it worked in two ways. Once one, they bypassed that, which is a strength of of uh, of the US team, and the other is it allowed them to get up the pitch quicker and the ball stuck. And you know there were times in, towards the end even where Kiefer Moore was. You know, there was a ball played into him in the box in his chest and controlling it on his chest and trying to bring people into play and that's a that's a weapon. It doesn't matter who he's playing against, that's gonna be hard to defend against. So yeah, I think it was a bit of both really. I think the US couldn't really find a way to deal with Kiefer Moore and it was really all about Kiefer Moore in the second half. It it had that kind of knockout feel to the to the game a little bit with the mm-hmm. intensity. I wondered whether part of that comes from a tactical view at looking at the games they've got and the expectation is is going to be that England beat both of those teams and the expectation is that who they're playing will be Iran. So I think they both looked at that as such a crucial game in whether they were going to progress to the knockout stages. Whoever won was going to have an advantage going through, which is why we saw such a entertaining match. Johnny, who's got the advantage then? Is it Wales with the comeback and the momentum and that atmosphere that was created in the second half, attacking the fans behind the goal, all the euphoric scenes? Is it Psychologically, is it them with the advantage now going into Iran and then maybe playing in England who are already qualified? I do. I think so. Um, I, I, I think absolutely because England will win every game or should do, but it might come down to who has the best goal difference and Wales would be well set up in a in a final game against England if England have already gone through to get a better result than the USA. And you've also got to factor in that the one game Iran are really going to raise themselves for are against America. And then also, you know, we've been talking about game smarts. I just think you saw that the USA probably had more quality, but Wales sort of managed the whole thing better, just had that little bit more nous about them. Uh, and I think could be relied on to sort of grind their way through this group. USA just didn't look a reliable team. Great finish Absolutely. by Timothy Weir, though. It was a lovely goal. Great, it was a lovely run. goal. Great, you know, Wales left themselves wide open, but Pulisic took advantage, and it was a brilliantly timed run across uh, Nico Williams, and it almost nonchalant finish with outside his foot. So that was that was one kind of moment of kind of burst of quality that you saw from them. But as I said, I said yesterday, Josh Argent's leading the line for them, and I still mm. don't really see who's the goal scorer for them. If I was a member of Team USA, I, I would be feeling pretty gutted because they should have they should have put the game out of sight in the first half. They look really good in the first half. And I think they'll come away thinking that was our moment. And the way the games pan out, as you discussed, it doesn't fall well for them. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I would, I'm not quite as impressed with Wales as the rest of you, actually. I don't think... Scoring a penalty counts as the moment of genius from Gareth Bale. And I just thought 
they needed a little bit more from him. He looked at one point like he might get sent off. I mean, he looked a bit ragged and not quite ready, but he might warm up. He might, as he gets into the swing of it, more of his ability will come through. And is it is it clever to not play the way you should play? From I mean, why, why start playing properly after 45 minutes? Shouldn't they have started with more? Because most pundits thought they would anyway. So it just seemed a bit perverse not to. So I thought it was a slightly weird performance from Wales. Right, you're definitely the moody one now. I'm not I, like you can't you can't deny it now. I, you, you moaned before when I gave you I gave you the title, but after that, come on, it's Wales. We're all Wales, aren't we? We're absolutely mad for it. Come on, Alison. Yeah, Alison. and you're letting you're letting being mad for it get in the way of yeah, well, analyzing I mean, a really really poor first half. Of you're not coming on again. Absolutely miserable. Honestly, what's going on, dearie me? I was only on holiday for two weeks. What happened? Something gone on. Has someone upset you? We'll talk about it off air afterwards. Anyway, now, before we go, we've got to do a quick, quick word on Holland's 2-0 win against Senegal. And for me, there's only one talking point, guys. That Holland kit is the wrong shade of orange, isn't it? That is comp- <laughs> like, that's not a Holland kit. What's going on? It's like a kind of dark, dark, burnt yellow. What's going on? We're not having that. Alison, you be- come on. You're the, you're the grumpy one. You must have hated it as well. No, I just love the fact it was orange because I just think whenever you see orange, it cheers you up. Makes you think of <laughs> Cruyff turns and hey, you're being really moody and negative, Tom. I thought it was a lovely strip. Great. So you love the Holland kit, but did you love the Holland performance? Did you think there was anything in there? Because it, it, you know, it wasn't a great game. I, I must confess, I was in the office thinking, here we have sandwiched between England and Wales, the hipsters' paradise, Holland v Senegal. This is going to be great, isn't it? It's going to be one of those World Cup classics, two-two controversy, maybe a sending off. And then you're watching it going, oh my God, what on earth is this? No one can put passes together. There was a moment where Frankie de Jong kind of beat a few men and ran into the opposition half. And I I went, go on, Frankie, just because I was so excited (laughs) about something something happening. Did you see anything from the the lads in orange that you so so enjoyed? Well, the fact that they won in a game, which I think both teams were happy not to win and not to lose because they both have a superiority complex and they know they're the best teams in their group so see see out the draw and then do your business in the week against the weak teams and then you both go through so it's almost against the script that the Dutch did win actually but it, it, at one stage you're right I did feel like it, this could go on for several weeks and we wouldn't see anything much happening that was exciting but you know when games are like that and you do get you do get goals you've got to think oh, well maybe they're maybe they've got something going for them here but no it wasn't it was as you say it should have been hipster paradise and it was pedestrian yeah johnny do you think we're going to see a team in this world cup who are going to miss a player more than senegal are missing sadio mane i can't i can't think of a team that are going to miss a player more no 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 i I mean they are different without him and watching qatar the other night just thinking what sadio mane might have done to Mm. no that that's the big thing for senegal isn't it It, they look they looked at a decent enough side without the cutting edge without the talisman. And I thought Holland looked very Van Gaal, very, very efficient, incredibly well structured and a little bit sort of wooden at times. But they'll, you know, that's a great result for them. Great result mm. for them. And uh, he will, uh, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll build on that and, and they'll, they'll be, they'll win that group now. Gregor, anything in that pragmatic approach to suggest that, you know, as Johnny says, you only have to win games to win tournaments. Any chance of them going far in this tournament, Holland? 
No, the best thing about that game was Ali McCoy's commentary, really. <laughs> for me, <laughs> he's managed um, to shoehorn some Scottish <laughs> praise in. I knew he'd manage it somehow. We had England and Wales. No, I mean it, Frank Frankie De Jong's ball in for 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 Gakpo for the header. That was a moment of real quality. One view from kind of behind him, he saw him just arc it in beautifully. But it was, I, I, I thought it started quite brightly too. I thought. I thought Senegal looked quite lively, and Ismail Assar looked quite lively. It looked like he might cause them some problems, but then it did just sort of sit and settle into something that was no one really wanted to make a big mistake, and no one really had that cutting edge. There was the odd moment from Holland on, like almost on the counter, or any kind of fast attacks. But I don't know. It, the fact is, the fact is, if if teams can keep clean sheets, they've got a good chance of going far. That's always been the case in 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 major tournaments. So they've certainly got a solid foundation. So who knows? They might they may improve. I hope so. We will see. Now we've got four more games tomorrow, including Alison's favourite team, Denmark. So hopefully that'll cheer her up next time she's on the podcast after seeing a win for the boys in red. Uh, that's it from us. Thanks to Johnny Northcroft, Alison Rudd, Tom Roddy, and Gregor Robertson. This is the part where Hugh normally says, make sure you're subscribed and tells you all to check out all the amazing content on the website. But after an England win like that, I know that you'll be doing it already. So enjoy all those excellent articles from the team and we'll be back with another podcast tomorrow. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.